Suffering is not an if for the Christian, it's a when. Suffering does not become a thing I'm willing to take on if it happens to come my way. Suffering is the lifestyle of the Christian. Romans 12 and verse 1, we become living sacrifices. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, don't be upset if you suffer as a Christian. Don't you know all who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution? And it's the suffering, 1 Peter says, it's the suffering that Jesus did, setting an example that we might walk in his steps. The New Testament says, God has granted you the opportunity to live and die like Christ. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Now let's figure out what that has to do with his larger plan. Here's Nathan Guy. You know, Andrew led us in a song about God and God's holiness, the focus being on God. Then Mike just led us in a prayer and included a line where he said, help us to remember that we don't have to have all the answers. We need to know that you're our father. There couldn't have been a better introduction to looking for the gospel in Job. You all know the book. It's the suffering book. Not the book you want to read on a Monday when you've just been told that you might have a lot to be suffering about. Job. There's a couple of things that we know from the text that we want to kind of lay out here as we try to look at the problem. And I want to make the problem stark. I want us to really feel the problem before we start dealing with solution. Job is a profoundly righteous man. I know this is a difficult book, and commentary sometimes will go in different ways about what's going on with Job. But it seems to me that verse 1 of the book, the narrator says that Job was an upright and righteous man. And in verse 8, God himself says, Have you seen my servant Job? There is nobody better on the planet. I'm going to take them at their word and say, Job is a righteous man. God, number two, has ultimate control. Once you see how I set up the problem, Job is a righteous man, but God has ultimate control. It turns out everybody in the story agrees with that. Uh, Job is questioning God about what's happened to him, which means I tend to think he's saying, God, you could do something about this. In chapter one, when all the sons of God come before God and it says the Satan, the Satan, the accuser goes with them, whatever happens there, however it concludes, notice how there's a bartering in some that's going on. And the Satan, Satan, seems to think somehow God has ultimate control. God sets the borders. God sets the limits. Everybody agrees God's in control. So let's name those two again. Job is a righteous man. God has ultimate control. Number three, Job suffers terribly. You know, we don't get out of the first chapter without Job suffering the loss of his sons, his daughters, his servants, his fields. And then chapter two, he gets sores from the top of his head to the sole of his foot where it hurts to stand up or lay down or sit down. This is not a good beginning 
to a story, we've already established that God is ultimate control and the main character is a righteous man. Number four, while other agents may be the direct cause of his suffering, it could be, for example, like in this story, that you have a particular person, Satan here, causing the pain. In your life, there could be direct things involved that cause your pain. But it seems to me that if we're going to take number two seriously, that God has ultimate control, then whether it's by God's permission or by God's direction, God is either the final cause or he's the one that stands by and explains the final cause. Number five, Job's friends are most helpful when they keep their mouths shut. Remember chapter one, there's this system that goes on in which it looks as if something bad's going to happen to a righteous man. And it does. Chapter two, even more. Chapter three, Job's friends come and they sit with him and they don't say a word for a week. Good advice. And then, of course, you know the old line, it's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And so they begin, one by one. You can't blame them. I can't blame them. I've been in situations where I see somebody I love who's hurting, and you want to say something. We've all said something to hurting people that looking back on, we wish we had said differently. I've got some one-liners in my head right now, but I'm afraid that they might be too fresh depending on your situation, so I won't use them. But you know situations where somebody goes through difficult times and trying to help them, we say something that ends up feeling too glib, overlooking the difficulty of the moment. That's what they do. They're also, by the way, not just talking to them, they're talking to themselves. Have you ever done this? The situation is troublesome. It's hard to put these things together. You're righteous. God's ultimately in control. You're suffering. How do I deal with these puzzle pieces? And so they're trying to explain it in a way that they could walk away and say, yeah, that sounds right. That makes sense of the situation. They're dealing with what they know. And so Job's friends discuss the different possibilities. Here's the ones they discuss. Maybe God blesses the good and God curses the bad. By the way, there are plenty of places in the Bible we could go and see God doing just that. There are places where God blesses the good and curses the bad. In fact, in the law, remember, one of the things God said when he gave the law to Moses was, and, to, and when he spoke to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. If you do these things, I will bless you. If you don't do these things, Behold, there'll be curses that follow. So God blessing the good and cursing the bad, that's, that's not an unbiblical statement. Now, there's a second thing that sounds like the first, but it's very different. And that's to reverse the words. If you've been blessed, it must mean you're good. And if you've been cursed, it must mean you're bad. Do you see the difference? You know, they do this in logic class. They'll say, all cats are four-footed animals, but not all four-footed animals are cats. It may be true 
that God blesses the good and sends curse on the bad. But it's not always true that if you've been cursed, it means you're bad. And if you've been blessed, it means you're good. Is there any Bible for that? Well, let me twist the line here for a second. In the New Testament, Jesus is talking about rain. Would you think that rain can be a blessing to somebody with a garden? Can rain be a blessing to someone who's thirsty? And Jesus says God causes the rain to fall on who? The just and the unjust. It sounds to me like an unjust person who's thirsty and needs their crops to grow just got blessed. It's not always the case, you see. That if you've been blessed, it means you're good. And if you've been cursed, it means you're bad. But they're having trouble with that. They're saying God blesses the good. God curses the bad. Job sinned. Therefore, he must be cursed. He must be feeling the effects of his sin. And Job says, that ain't right. And one by one, they say, Job, I don't think you heard me. God's in control. God blesses the good and curses the bad. You've been cursed, so you must be bad. And Job says, that's not right. So his next friend gets up. I I can see the disagreement. Let me try. God's in control and God blesses the good and curses the bad. You've been cursed, so you must be bad. Is Is that easier to understand? No, says Job, it's not right. I didn't do anything wrong. So Elihu gets up, and Elihu gives a beautiful, long, poetic speech. It's gorgeous. He doesn't say these words, but if I could summarize. God's in control, and God blesses the good and curses the bad. And you've been cursed, so you must be bad. It's not true. I want to take my case to God, and so he does. If Job didn't sin, and yet he was cursed, I don't know what to do with that, says his friends. There's one line, and I looked and looked before the sermon tonight, and I could not find it, because it was in one of those obscure versions that I can't remember where I got it from anymore, that was taking a passage, and I typed in every word I could think of to find it in Bible Gateway, and I couldn't figure out where it is. Somewhere in Job, in a very obscure version, somebody says to Job, why are you turning the world upside down? And I've always loved that because you know that Job wasn't turning the world upside down. If Job is right, he was turning their world upside down because they couldn't imagine a world with all those puzzle pieces, but not fitting together the way that made sense to them. If Job didn't sin and yet he's experiencing sin, pain, disease, suffering, curse, then it's going to require rethinking. So let's try it out. Let's try out some rethinking. Maybe, they they, they don't cover these, but since then, people have, philosophers have tried to cover these. How do you put those together? Well, maybe God isn't actually all-knowing. That's one possibility. How do you explain that God's in control? You didn't sin, but you've been cursed. Well, maybe God just overlooked you, didn't see what was happening. If he had known, he would have fixed it, but he just wasn't paying attention. That's not going to work. First of all, that doesn't mean he's ultimately in control, if that's the case. So that doesn't work. Okay, well, maybe God's not all-powerful. How about that one? Rabbi Harold Kushner, his son died tragically, so he wrote a book. And in the book, trying to help parents deal with 
suffering, he says, just remember this, God, God's pretty powerful and God's pretty good, but maybe he's not all powerful. Well, that won't work. That won't work with what we know about God and all things being subject to him. So if God's all knowledgeable and God's all powerful and he's in control and you are cursed, maybe God's not all good. Maybe he likes likes to see people hurt. You know, sometimes little kids not knowing any better may get the magnifying glass and let the sun do some scorching on some defenseless little bugs. Maybe God does that to us. You know that won't work. And we'll talk about this later, but let's try on for a second that God is all knowledgeable. God is all powerful. God is all good. God is in control. Job didn't sin and yet he's suffering. We need to figure something out. I want to tell you the bad news and then the good news, okay? Here's the bad news. Job is 43 chapters long. And you want to know, where does God give the answer to that? Guess what? He doesn't. There's actually brilliance in his madness here, but I'll get to that if madness is the right word. You know what I mean. I read through Job looking for the answer to the problem of evil. And he never says, here's the explanation. The closest he gets is in chapters 38 and 39. All of his friends have spoken. Now it's God's turn. And God says, step back for a second. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When I made a thing called snow, and I thought this was going to be great for a lot of people. And the Eskimos are going to really get tired of it. And where were you when I decided that I was going to make Orion's belt? Where were you when I created the giant sea creatures and all the land creatures? And I dreamed this whole thing up. Where, where were you? Remind me, because I don't remember seeing you there. And that's not God picking at anyone. That's not the case. What he's trying to do is begin with, this is his first line, God's first line to Job. Consider what you don't know. That's a really important first line when you try and deal with the problem of evil. Consider what you don't know. You're trying to figure out a hard question based on the things you do know. You know, sometimes when I want the right answer and I can't quite find the right answer, it's comforting to ask, is it possible that I'm not even asking the right question? Is it possible that there's information I don't have that if I had it would make more sense? So God begins by saying, there is a ton of information you don't have. Where were you? After saying, consider what you don't know, which is a sign for humility. The second thing he says is, consider what you do know. God knows Job by name. The readers who are reading the story know that God is very proud of Job. He says so in chapter one. Job is in God's trophy case. We know that God knows Job by name. God is proud of Job. And we've got a history. We've been reading through the Old Testament. We've got a history of God loving, caring for, and sacrificing for his people. What I don't know. Well, there aren't enough pages to write books of what I don't know. And what I do know is there's no one you can trust more 
than God our Father. Okay. That's all that God really shares about the problem in the book of Job. He never fully answers the question, but he does focus instead on the relationship of trust. The New Testament helps us out. In the New Testament, I learned some things and I can't help but think about the story of Job. And I see how it shows me the gospel. Because you see, in the New Testament, I'm confronted with someone who's about to go through terrible suffering. I mean, terrible suffering. I mean, crucifixion. And he's done nothing wrong. The question is, where is God in this story? And he even, in the garden, prays to God and says, God, if there's any other way, I'm up for it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's another way of saying, I trust you. His suffering ends up being used as part of a larger plan, larger than anyone could have fully realized. It turns out that the death of Jesus saves Israel. It doesn't just save and reconstitute Israel. It opens up the gateway that grafts in Gentiles as well. It doesn't just do that. It breaks the bonds of death. So all the promises of Abraham come true to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And it means we can live with God forever. And Satan no longer has an accusation. All of that is described in Revelation chapter 12. So much more is going on than just putting one guy to death. And in Acts 2, when Peter explains that, you can just see the look in the people's eyes. They're saying, I had no idea. There's more going on than what I could see. Jesus submitted to suffering. And the effects of his submission ended up leading to greater effects than the effects of the problem. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Who would have thought that his willingness to go through such suffering would lead to such greater accomplishments of joy that outweigh his momentary suffering. I learned in the New Testament that when Jesus suffers, he isn't just suffering as a representative of God. He is God. God suffers with us. I learned something else in the New Testament. Suffering is not an if for the Christian. It's a when. Suffering does not become a thing I'm willing to take on if it happens to come my way. Suffering is the lifestyle of the Christian. Romans 12 and verse 1, we become living sacrifices. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, don't be upset if you suffer as a Christian. Don't you know all who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution? And it's 
the suffering, First Peter says, it's the suffering that Jesus did, setting an example that we might walk in his steps. The New Testament says, don't be asking the question, why am I suffering and how do I get out of it? The New Testament says, God has granted you the opportunity to live and die like Christ. Now let's figure out what that has to do with his larger plan. The New Testament fills in gaps I hadn't seen before. God promises the end to all suffering, and he proves it by suffering himself and then God pulling him out of the grave. Let's go to the ending of Job, and then let's see if we can wrap this up. How does the book of Job end? Job reflects on what he doesn't know. Remember this beautiful line? I had heard about you from the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's a great line. It's where he's saying, yeah, I had heard the stories. I had heard the theology. I had all the syllogism in my head, but now I have encountered God. I'm a different man because of it. I can't help but wonder if somewhere in that he's also talking about how the suffering itself allowed him to encounter God in a way he couldn't have before. Is it possible that Job couldn't have seen this side of God without it? (laughs) He reflects on what he doesn't know, and then he reflects on what he does know. Job says, I trust in the relationship. Your shoulders are bigger than mine. You can handle it. And I trust you. The text says that he ended his life with more blessing than he ever had before. Consider what we don't know. There are some real difficult problems in life I don't have answers to. Why do little innocent children develop cancer? Why do people walk into schoolhouses, take the life of innocent kids? Why is it that there's places in the, in the world, in fact, there's places in America that are so poverty stricken, there's not enough pieces of bread to go around into everybody's hand. And these places lie within corridors of major highways where bread trucks go by every single day. There are questions I don't have answers to. Let me tell you something else I don't know. I don't know why God allowed the coffee bean production to go down so bad in El Salvador for 20 years, which led to incredible poverty. But I also know the number of people who pronounced their faith in Jesus grew dramatically during that period. I don't know why God allowed Chairman Mao to do his disastrous stuff in China for all those years. But I also know that there are gatherings of people today underground secretly in China, praising God that are bigger than any church in America. 
I don't know why God lets what's happened to you happen to you. I wish I did. I don't know. But I know that my God is the only character in the Bible I trust to know what to do with that. I don't want to say things that I don't know to be true. I also don't want to shortchange the situation. I've heard people look at a problem and they say, oh, God sent that to you because of something you did. If God didn't say it, I'm not going to say it. But I will tell you, there are places in the Bible where God does send things to people because of what they did. I've heard people say, oh, God, God doesn't force it. God just allowed it. I don't know if that's the case in your situation, but there's plenty of places in the Bible where God didn't want something to happen, but he allowed it. One thing I know with the story of Jesus is this. If for some reason that I can't explain, there needs to be pain, evil, and suffering in the world, whether it's to create an environment in which we learn to choose God on our own, whether it's because God allows free will and free will allows great highs and great lows, whatever the reason is, if God can't or won't, Stop the pain and suffering. The only other option that makes sense if we're trying to form a relationship is to come down and suffer with us. And that's what he does. My favorite story along this line. Apparently, it's a true story. Doctor, I think it was Seltzer, Selzer, who wrote about this. He said he was watching in a hospital room. There was a woman who had a terrible tumor on her lip. And the doctor explained, I'm going to have to cut it out. Well, it already happened. So he was explaining to her that he had to cut it out. But as he cut it out, he had to hit a nerve and he hit the nerve and the nerve twisted her lips permanently. And holding up a mirror to her face, she looked in the mirror and she began to sob. And you could tell she was trying to ask how how long will it be like this? And he said, it'll be like this forever. And without missing a beat, her husband, standing next to the hospital bed, looked at her and said, I think it's cute, and twisted his lips to match hers. In Christ, God saw our suffering, and he twisted his lips to match ours. He promises an end to it all. He promises he knows what he's doing. We see him with his character. And what he's saying in Job is the most profound answer to the problem of evil. I've got this. Trust me. And in Christ, we see maybe even in my suffering, I can let God tell a beautiful story of his own glory. I've heard people say I can't be a Christian because the problem of evil is my problem. I've heard them say that. If that has been your situation, I understand it. But I'll tell you, for me, I wouldn't know how to deal with evil in the world if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only solution to the problem of evil. I can't help but see the gospel in the book of Job. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.